Escape Pod 328 January 19, 2012 Surviving the Ebook Ellipse by Randy Henderson Hello and welcome to Escape Pod, your weekly science fiction podcast. I'm Norm Sherman. This week we bring you Surviving the Ebook Lips by Randy Henderson. Randy's a 2009 Clarion West graduate, a relapsed sarcasm addict, a milkshake connoisseur, contributor of nonfiction to Fantasy Magazine, and a third evolution arch magi of Rejectomancy. Find him at randy-henderson.com. The story is read to you by Roberto Suarez. So give that manuscript one more proofread before you send it in, because it's story time. Surviving the Ebook Ellipse by Randy Henderson I stepped off the electric bus into the shadow of the city public library, wearing my plastic replica chainmail and sword, and my suede book jacket with a laminated author's license clipped to the collar. Well, if it ain't Andre Jackson, a man's voice called. How's our shanky little author? My shoulders hunched as I turned to face Joey, who walked down the library steps in all his pasty-faced balding glory. Joey was my least favorite of the local e-mob reps, and he was trailed by his regular goon, a fellow with biceps like bowling balls stuffed into a suit, Two sizes too small. What's up, dog? Joey said and waved at the library. Not trying to dodge me by moving here, are ya? Because I work this hood too, yo. I had learned that Joey only used his archaic urban slang when talking to black authors like me. I shook my head. Just came here to find a patron. I've got two months left to pay you guys back. True up, Joey said. And when you don't, then you work for us. Yeah, well, until then, it would be nice if your hackers attacked the sites distributing bootlegs of my book, or maybe you promoted me a bit. It hardly seems fair I owe you for services not rendered. Oh, I'll get right on that, Joey said. But I suggest you worry more about your obligations and less about ours. And what's the attitude? Nobody said that authors need kneecaps to write for us. Word. His goon smiled at me exactly like a dog smiles at a mailman. Point taken. Thanks, I said. Better to swallow angry words than fists. Though it still didn't do my stomach any favors. Word is bond, Joey said, and he and his goon walked away. I flipped them off and then walked into the library. Before me stood a fully automated checkout kiosk for scheduling author recitals. The library floor beyond that was filled with neat rows of author cubicles, each with a desk and chair. Most were occupied. The air was filled with the soft tickety-ticking of keyboards and the smells of coffee, new-book-scented air fresheners, and cup of soup. 
I saw heads popping up over cubicle walls in response to the clacking of the door. Then they disappeared again when they saw I was no customer or potential patron. I understood their disappointed expressions too well. This was not at all where I thought I would be two years after publishing my first ebook. A woman's smile caught my attention. It was like cherry sunshine floating between her neon blue hair and her black lace dress. She emerged from a cube in the romance section, walked up to me, leaned in close, and sniffed at the air. Then she said with the hint of a Mexican accent, I smell a transfer from Bainbridge Library. No? An MFA boy, if I'm not mistaken. That obvious? I asked. Lucky guess. She laughed and flicked my author's license. Says so right here. Oh, yes, I felt the fool. I glanced at her author's license. Myra Sweet. That's me, she said. So the great literary novel didn't work out like you thought it would, eh? You've heard of my book? No, but it's the same old story. Follow me. I'll show you around. She turned and walked away. I followed in the wake of her sugary perfume, and my eyes were drawn down to the swaying of her hips. There lie danger, I felt certain. On the back of her black suede book jacket were reviews of her work. Myra Sweet's recital style would make an audience in Antarctica sweat. Romance recitals monthly. Sweet lives up to her name with the bride war pistols. This one has to be heard to be believed. Jenna Johnson, Amazon Random House. Myra Sweet blends sex and action so seamlessly her work deserves a new genre. Section? Saxy? Whatever. She's smoking hot. Phoenix Hilton. I wondered if the reviews were real. I hope they weren't. If someone with reviews like that didn't have a patron supporting her, what chance did I have? I reached back to make sure the blurb from my own book, Magic Days and Dark Nights, was still velcroed securely to the back of my jacket. We walked past the row of thriller authors, almost exclusively men with crew cuts, dressed in various colored jumpsuits and bomber-style book jackets. A few of them gave me an informal salute, or a cursory nod as we passed, and their musk cologne made me cough in response. We passed the row of horror authors, with their all-black clothing, red or black hair, and pale skin. Most of them arched a single eyebrow at me or stared at me until I looked away. Further off, I saw cowboys and cowgirls, renaissance-garbed folks, and business casual attire. Seeing so many authors of the same genre together just reinforced my opinion that dressing to genre was not a good idea for everyone. One man's mustachio was another man's weasley whiskers. One woman's ghostly was another woman's sickly. It reminded me to straighten my posture and suck in my modest gut. At the back of the library was a timeline of books displayed across the wall. We walked along it, following the growth and fall of the book, 
from Gutenberg and Cervantes to e-books and the printable kiosks. At the end was a glass case with a collection of outdated e-reading devices, each with their own protected licensing format that had died with them. And after the timeline display sat, ironically, a bank of printabook vending machines. Anyone could pop in a memory stick with a pirated file, pay a couple bucks, and print a copy of my book, and the only people who would see the money was the machine's owners. It was hard not to be bitter about the way all this technology had helped destroy the old publishing industry before I ever got a chance to be published. At last, we reached a small office in the back corner where I was introduced to Agnes, the librarian, a thin woman with wild brown hair and a face frozen in an irritated expression. Her office smelled of corn nuts. Transfer, she asked. I nodded. This library has the most recital requests for fantasy, so... Okay, Agnes said. Here's your cube assignment and public housing ticket. You have two months left on your author's license to find a patron or register 50 recitals. Otherwise, your license will expire, you will no longer receive public arts funding, and you will be removed from the library's author listings. Questions? Just one, I said. Uh, what time do you get off? One hour after you turn into Hemingway, Agnes said. Save the charm for your audience. You'll certainly need every ounce you've got. She slid a virtual reality visor down over her eyes, effectively ending the conversation. Clearly, charming the librarian would not get me a favorable queue position or online listing status in this library. Myra led me to my cube. So, she said as we walked, what kind of fantasy do you write? Historical fantasy, I said. Really? You know, I write historical romance, but I'm looking to make the jump to Jungle Fay. If you're any good, we should think about collaborating. Yeah, maybe, I said. Me? Write about Amazon fairies in steamy jungles? Or jungle fairies fighting and loving steamy Amazonians? I swore I would die before I jumped on the Jungle Fay bandwagon. And not just because of the confusion of Greek Amazons and the Amazon jungle. I agreed with my graduate advisor that such pulp was not literature. It was pandering to the lowest common denominator among decadent and lazy-minded patrons. Writing historical fantasy was at least close to my true literary interests, and it was compromise enough. Right, Myra said. Well, while you're thinking about it, I'd just like to point out that I had a patron for four years and had a party draw rating of 200 before I left. So don't you think you'd be doing me the favor, stud? It's the other way around. A party rating of 200 wasn't like having a spot on the New York Times best tellers list, but it would still guarantee Myra's patron a decent attendance at any recital he or she sponsored with a respectable return in stature and profits as a result. So I assumed she was attempting a joke on the gullible newbie. Pranks were common between authors in the library, since we often had too much time to kill between recitals. 
Why are you here then? I said. You should easily be able to get a patron. What can I say? I'm a girl of mystery. Myra stopped and motioned like a game show hostess to a cubicle. And here we are, your new home. A man's voice said, Your sword is wrong for your armor. I turned and found a man peeking over the cubicle wall at me in such a way that I could see only his eyes. He had on a wizard's pointed gray hat. Excuse me, I said. Your sword, it is clearly modeled on the sort of state of the city of Canterbury, which was early... Waldo, Myra said, why don't we give the new guy a break on his first day, okay? She leaned in close to me and whispered, Waldo the wizard there is kind of Rain Man meets Gandalf with zero social skills. Don't take offense at what he says. He usually means well. Thanks, I said. No problem. She stepped back. I'll go ahead and leave you to your literary ambitions. Let me know how that works out for you. She gave me another one of those bright smiles and walked away. Man, I thought, I hope I get out of here soon. It really is the wrong sort, I heard Waldo mutter. The first two weeks flew by. I put my marketing plan into effect. I invested in a premium profile on patronmatch.vert, uploaded new recital teasers to Café Verité, blasted social media, put up flyers, attended local conventions, the works. I even decorated my cube with a half-sized cardboard stand-up of a knight riding a horse. My goal was to be well-placed to promote myself to all the genre fans who would show up when Zachary Chenko came to give his guest recital at the end of that two weeks. Yes, the Zachary Chenko, shining example of how you could earn enough money and fame as an epic fantasy author to become your own patron. And the Zachary Chenko, equally famed for his insulting portrayals of women in his fiction and his womanizing and drunken exploits in real life. Yet despite my best efforts at self-promotion, I finished that first two weeks with just 24 e-friends and only four recitals performed in the Recording Proof recital room. I had exactly zero patronage offers by the time Chenko arrived for his recital. Chenko strode in on a wave of alcohol fumes, a squat man with wild white hair and a pro golfer's fashion sense and announced, I refuse to give a recital as long as that crowd of feminist harpies is outside having a PMS fit. It turned out a group of women were protesting the recital. I peeked outside and saw signs being waved. Chenko writes women like pimps employ women. This is a library, not a men's club. Writing sex fantasies while high is not sexy high fantasy. Chenko is Stanko. Apparently, this had happened at every recital he tried to give for the past year. We waited to see if the protesters would leave or be cleared out, 
and I managed to get an opening to speak with Chenko alone as he was exiting the men's room. "'Sir,' I said, "'I was wondering if you could give me some tips on how to succeed as an author?' "'You're black,' he said. "'Yes,' I said, and felt the smile on my face stiffen into a mask. "'Why are you wearing armor?' "'Because,' I said, and took a calming breath, "'I am a historical fantasy author.' "'I see.' Well, then, my first tip would be to wear, I don't know, Zulu armor or something. It's not like Lancelot was black, kid. Write what you know. It's the oldest tip around. Write about voodoo magic in the inner city or vampire tiger people in Africa or whatever. No, scratch that. My first tip would be to not write fantasy at all. You'll never get a patron that way. People just don't expect fantasy from a black man. They're barely used to it from black women, and I only listen to them if they're hot. I stopped myself from hitting him. Barely. That would only get me booted from the library and then any chance of getting published and any chance of making him eat his words someday. I retreated to the bathroom instead, where I knocked over the trash can and kicked the stall doors until the anger dimmed. Luckily, Chenko canceled the recital and had left by the time I came out. But Myra was waiting for me. You okay? she asked. Something happened? I shook my head. There was no point in whining about it to her. I'm fine. If you say so, she said. Come on, I'll take you out to lunch. We settled in a 1950s-themed deli, crowded with business casual office workers who smelled of drudgery and cologne. Halfway through lunch, Myra jumped up from our booth and ran into the woman's bathroom. When she came back, I said, You okay? She patted her stomach. I will be in about six months. Oh, indeed, she said. Want to guess who the father is? Uh, your former patron? My married former patron. Now see, you aren't as slow as you pretend. Yeah, thanks, I said. I wondered why you would give up a successful patronage. And is that why you wanted to collaborate? Yep. If I had a fantasy co-author, that would help diffuse certain expectations patrons have of me as a romance author. They would also be less worried about my being pregnant if I appeared to have a partner. And then there's the little fact that I don't know how to write fantasy that well. I suppose that was the part where I should offer to collaborate. But I didn't want to, and I did not. Instead, I changed the subject. So, I said, what made you want to be an author? You want my patron interview answer? She switched to a sultry tone. I love to bring pleasure to others. She smiled at me, then continued in her normal voice. Honestly, I happen to like food and shelter and buying things, but I didn't want a boring day job. 
and I'm a rather sensual person, but I didn't want to be a porn star or a prostitute either. So, you know, this seemed like a nice compromise. Besides, inside this smoking hot bod lies the heart of a sappy romantic. Ah, I said, indeed. How about you? Why are you a fantasy author? I thought for a minute. Interview answer? I did my best to mimic her sultry voice. I love to make people's fantasies come true. <laughs> she laughed. She had a pleasant laugh, an honest laugh. My ego puffed up, and for a second I was tempted to build on my small success and flirt with her. The instinctive male response when a beautiful woman laughs at your joke. Thankfully, I had seen her verbally slap down plenty of would-be suitors in the library, and so did not embarrass myself. Nice, she said. And the real answer? What made you want to be an author? The real answer. When I was 17, my mother died, I said. It was slow and painful. I didn't know how I was going to get through it. Then my aunt gave me a paper book titled The Life of Trees and Mothers by Sarah Sitaya. It was like the author knew all my feelings, all my fears, all my questions, and had woven a tale around them. That was when I first knew I wanted to author a great literary masterpiece. Something that could touch others, the way Sitaya's book had touched me. Myra was silent a minute, then said, Have you written your masterpiece? No, I said. I thought I had, but apparently it wasn't good enough. Or maybe it was. I don't know. Like lots of people, I thought my book would be different that people would be willing to pay for it. I even paid an e-mob agent for 3P help with publishing, promotion, and protection. Are you crazy, Myra said. You're going to end up writing VP Anders novels. I shuddered. The e-mob had a whole stable of writers whose unlucky job it was to churn out new books in series created by now-dead authors. They had strong-armed the rights from the deceased's families. It was even worse than their public domain mashups. And it was my nightmare that in two months' time, I would find myself writing that crap as an anonymous word slave to pay off my debts, and of course to avoid bodily injury. Yeah, I said, I know that now. It wasn't like my agent went under the business name Emob, and they didn't teach us about this stuff in school. But once I have a patron, I can put all that behind me and, and I will write my true masterpiece. Well, I sure hope you get your chance. I love to hear it when you're done. And hey, she said and put a hand on my knee. Don't be afraid to tell potential patrons that you want to touch them with your words. Joey and his goon were waiting at my cube when I returned from lunch. Yo, dog, Joey said. Heard you're not having much luck on the patron tip. That's really too bad. Just remember, you're a great writer with a great attitude, and great things will happen to you. Like Alexander the Great. 
He didn't just do well because of his name. I wrote that. Think about it. Sadly, Joey had recently tried to become an author himself by writing self-help books. I had watched one of his recitals on the Vertnet. I would have felt embarrassed for the guy if I didn't hate him so much. I certainly didn't respect his advice. I did, however, respect the fact that his goon's hands were the size of my head, so I kept my full opinion to myself. Thanks, I said. I'll keep that in mind. Word, Joey said. Oh, and I suppose I should also add that soon you'll be doing those great things for us. Unless you pay us back, of course. See you in six weeks. Joey and his goon wandered off. Waldo's voice floated over the cubicle wall. Alexander the Great conquered half the world by the age of 32. You're almost 32. Thanks, Waldo. I know. He was worshipped as a god, you know. You've got 24... E friends, and I think most of these are uh, porn spam. I know, Waldo. I- I'm just saying, I don't think it's a valid comparison. Drop it, Waldo. The next two weeks went better than the first two. My recital requests were increasing as my marketing plan and word of mouth started to have an effect. I even had a patronage offer. Unfortunately, it was from a man who spoke knowledgeably of medieval torture devices and who asked suggestive questions about how well I could use my sword. I politely declined. I also managed to avoid being pranked by the other authors, although I began to wonder if that was a good thing. One of the more popular pranks was to sneak up and yank down an author's pants during their recital. It had gained our library a bit of a reputation, which apparently helped draw in more viewers. Still, I doubted anyone at a patronage level would be drawn by such plebeian entertainments, or be any more likely to employ me if they saw me in my underwear. It might work for someone like Myra, but not for me. Not that Myra seemed to be having any better luck finding a patron or a collaborator that she liked. And then, Zakarychenko returned. Myra apparently knew Chenko from her glory days giving romance recitals and had hit him up with her ideas for a Jungle Fae novel during his last visit. She had somehow convinced him that collaborating with a woman was the best way to repair his reputation, and now they began working together. I was tempted to tell her what he had said to me, but refrained. If I wasn't willing to collaborate with her, then I didn't feel like it would be right to mess with her other opportunities even if the opportunity was with a complete ass. When I walked by the soundproof, quiet room where they did their work, I saw that Myra had cracked the door open. Given the waves of Old Spice that wafted out, I understood why. Zack, no, I heard Myra say. The Amazons are not going to be lesbian nymphomaniac nymphs from Lesbos. Now I've got an idea for how they could reproduce using... Okay, Chenko said. Well, if they are human, then I think they need to have men. How else would they become lesbians unless... Hijo de 
puta. Lesbians are born lesbians. They don't have penis envy. They were not abused. They do not require men to hate in order to exist. And if you'd listen, the Amazons don't even need to be lesbians or have human fathers. So, were you born a lesbian? No, Zack, I was not born a lesbian. Now, good. Then why don't we go back to your apartment and finish this argument there over some wine, or I suppose some seltzer for you? Not going to happen. Now focus. Can we at least figure out who our Amazons are today? Please. I know who they are, Chenko said, and his voice took on a superior lecturing tone. <clears throat> the women are a race of ensorcelled love slaves, released into the jungle to battle for the right to breed with the men. The men understand and control the powerful magic left by their ancestors and watch the women from their hidden city. But without the direct exposure to the guidance and rationality of men, the women revert to Myra screamed and something plastic was thrown against the wall. I hurried away. I was not envious of either Zachary Chenko or Myra. And while I had only a month left on my license and my EMOB deadline, I was feeling more hopeful about getting a patron than ever. I felt like I was just on the verge of success, and every recital felt like it might be the one that returned a patron offer. Joey was waiting for me when I reached my cube, his goon at his side. Hey, dog, Joey said. Heard the news? Actually, have you heard? I responded. I had a patron offer, and I expect more soon. Ah, so you haven't seen this. Joey held up a tablet and touched the screen. A YouTube vid played of me giving a recital. I felt as though my stomach had just fallen out. Shit. I was ruined. Having your latest material on the vertnet was the kiss of death, especially for authors like me who relied more on content than packaging. Viewing online allowed a potential patron to skim, to skip, to get only a superficial impression and then move on. There would be no need for them to come audition me in person, where I would have their attention, their investment of time and personal interaction to win them over. Even if I could write all new material and get the word out in the next month, it would not be enough time to undo the damage or generate new buzz. So sorry to be the bearer of bad news, dog, Joey said. Just thought you'd want to get the 411 from a friend. Okay, I said. Send a friend over and I'll listen. Oh, snap. But hey, you made a good run at it. Still, you teach a man to fish and he'll eat for a lifetime. But there used to be plenty of fish in the sea. Word? I wrote that. Think about it. True up, I said. Joey and his goons strolled off, both grinning. I turned back to my cube and grabbed my chair, ready to collapse into it. On the seat was a paper horse head. I looked up and confirmed that it had been ripped off of my cardboard display. What the hell? An author prank, perhaps? 
but it felt more like vandalism than a joke. Waldo's voice drifted over the cubicle wall. It's from the Godfather. What? The horse head. It's from a a scene in The Godfather. A a mob warning. A reminder of power. Joey and the E-mob. They had probably made the bootleg vids, I realized. Just another way to remove competition for their current authors and leave new authors with little option but to work for them. Joey was rubbing my nose in it. You know, Waldo said, in the Godfather movie, they used a real horse's head from a dog food factory. Waldo, please, I said, not right now. I'm, I'm having a bad day. I plopped down into the chair and rested my head on the edge of the desk. There had to be something I could do, some way to avoid becoming an indentured anonymous author. At this point, I would settle for a patron who paid with cheap room and board, just as long as they advanced me the money I needed to pay off the e-mob. Waldo said, Don't feel bad. They videoed Ted Marco over in Thrillers too. Probably used lip-reading software and voice replication. I saw this example once where they lip-read a guy right through the recording protection screen and then had a virtual Elvis sing the words online. It actually made the author famous for a while as the Elvis guy, but then, Waldo, seriously, I said. And then, thoughts fell into place like divers into a water ballet, forming a beautiful pattern. I might not be able to use Elvis to get my name out there, but I did have another option. Waldo? You're the best, I said, then ran to Myra's cube. She looked up. Come to say goodbye? No, I said. How would you like to collaborate on a Jungle Fay novel? Seriously, she shook her head. I'm sorry, Andre, but to be brutally honest, I don't think it would matter now. With your license expiring soon and those vids of you, I don't think we'd have time to build enough buzz, and I have an idea about that. It means sacrificing your friendship with Zachary Chenko, however. Myra raised her eyebrows. Oh, she smiled. Well, why didn't you say so in the first place? At this point, I'd happily sacrifice Zach himself. Let's hear this big idea of yours. Two weeks of marathon writing later, our plans came to fruition at a party organized by another of Myra's contacts. Myra was dressed in a flowing black dress, and I was wearing a tuxedo. Both were rentals. I also carried a duffel bag with our book jackets in it. The party was in a three-story mansion that looked faintly gothic in style. The crowd of guests was spread throughout the first floor, mostly middle-aged women in evening wear, with the occasional author working the crowd in their genre costume and book jacket. I recognized a couple of e-mob reps as well, including Joey and his goon. They had gotten my anonymous invitation. Hey, buddy, Joey said, stepping out of the crowd. Hoping to get Chenko's table scraps? I shook my head. You know I don't have anything to offer a patron now, I said. I'm just here to support Myra. Yeah... Tough break on those vids. 
Well, I'll be in touch next week to discuss your work for us. A chime sounded, announcing that it was time to gather for the recital. Excuse us, I said to Joey. Then Myra and I made our way to the recital room, a small private theater with an interference screen erected in front of the stage like a glass wall to prevent most forms of recording. We found Zachary Chenko already waiting backstage, behind the curtains. He gave me an up-and-down glance. "'What's he doing here?' he asked. Myra brushed dandruff off of his shoulders and said, "'This is Andre. He's a fan, and just wanted to watch from backstage.' Turn around, you're a mess. Chenko grunted, but did as Myra asked. This had better work, he said. I'm tired of those crazy feminazis screwing up my gigs. Myra pulled a rolled-up sheet of felt out of her sleeve and smoothed it across his back as she brushed with her hand. Chenko did not appear to notice. There, looking good, Myra said. Now remember... Stick to our story, no improvising. Just play nice tonight, and tomorrow you will be able to have recitals protest-free. Right, Chenko said. Let's get this over with. A second chime sounded. Good luck, I said. Myra winked at me and took Chenko's arm. Together, they parted the curtains and walked out onto the small stage. Zachary's voice poured from the speakers in the room. Welcome to a reading of A Woman's View by Zachary Chenko and Myra Sweet. Any unauthorized recordings or transcriptions are illegal, yada yada. Now apparently, there are some strong opinions about my supposed views and treatment of women based on my books and a few incidents at my recitals. Clearly, explanations and apologies are not enough. So I hope that my collaboration tonight with the lovely Myra Sweet and the powerful message of the story we've written will be the first step in demonstrating my true feelings and moving us past any misunderstandings. Thank you all. And now, a woman's view. I went up on stage and tapped Chenko on the shoulder. He turned around. What? he said. I yanked down his pants. There was a second of silence from the audience, and then several women began to laugh. The rest of the crowd soon joined them. Chenko's face turned bright red, and from his expression, I knew it was more from anger than embarrassment. He pulled his pants back up. You've just ruined yourself, you talentless punk, he said, and rushed off stage, pushing me roughly aside as he passed. I watched him go with the large white letters on his back that read, I may be an ass, but I would not turn my back on Amazonian fire, by Myra Sweet and Andre Jackson, a cheeky romp filled with love, lust, and magic. I doubted the audience was able to read much more than the first line, but it would get heavy viewing online, especially if Joey was recording this as I hoped he was. The e-mob would finally do their job promoting me or miss out on all the views this event could get. And Joey would surely get in some trouble for not only losing me as a writer, but actually helping me to escape. 
Myra said, Thank you all. May I introduce my true collaborator, Andre Jackson. I bowed and stepped up in range of the microphones. Thank you. We will now recite the first section of our new novel, Amazonian Fire, and gladly accept offers of patronage following the recital. Myra and I ripped off our tearaway outfits, revealing her leopard skin one piece and my goat lame fairy armor. I gave an especially white grin to Joey, who looked as though he had just discovered there was no Santa Claus. Then we gave our recital, and the audience laughed and cried and applauded at the end with calls for us to continue. I was touching people with my words. I decided maybe this wouldn't be such a horrible way to live for a while. I would still one day write the great American novel that would transform people's lives and the world of literature forever. But in the meantime, what was wrong with a few steamy Amazons fighting and loving city fairies? Absolutely nothing. Let's hit episode feedback with Escape Pod assistant editor Bill Peters. Take it away, Bill. Hello, faithful listeners. I'm here this week with the feedback for episode 322, Chicken Noodle Gravity by J. Daniel Sawyer and read by our Paul Herring. This one told the tale of a gay couple going through cancer and relativistic time dilation. Apollonia said, I love this story. The whole time listening to it, I kept thinking it's like sci-fi pop art. It's like taking Andy Warhol's soup can painting and then reworking it so it's the primary energy source for Star Drive. Meanwhile, Daniel's brilliance as a writer shows through in how he describes both the fixture of our culinary psyche, the soup, and then mixes it with the pathos of long-term illness. Campbell's chicken noodle soup is heavily associated with that blah feeling, so much so that we rarely ever eat it when we're, we're healthy. But when we're sick, it's the blessed mana from heaven, you know, enough to survive our beleaguered stomachs. SF Fangirl said, The juxtaposition of the grimness of the terminal illness, hunger, and poverty with the absurdity just didn't work for me. I did really want to like it, but the whole is less than the sum of its parts. I was moved by the love of the two men and the tragedy of the loss of that love. That was very well done. That realism made the absurdity of the science harder to take, though. Additionally, the highly probably unhappy ending would have been much easier to ignore if the narrator hadn't made provisions for the cold of space and but gave no thought to the lack of oxygen. And that's it for this week. Tune in next week for the feedback from episode 323, marking time on the far side of forever. Thanks, Bill. All right, folks, that's our show. Remember, Escape Pod's a production of Escape Artists Incorporated, and it's produced with the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, which means don't change or sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. Our music is used with the permission of Daikaiju. Check them out at daikaiju.org. And our closing quotation this week comes from Ben Franklin, who said, Either write something worth reading, or do something worth writing. <laughs>